Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. And they say, no one's bringing us any help. We're screwed. They're screwing us. Let's do something ourselves. Because they are Christians, predominantly, they have a network of different churches throughout the region, and they've collaborated and formed this vigilante group that is affiliated with various churches. So you get the, the younger guys at the church. Um, they put on little helmets. They have these little uh, camouflage uniforms, and they go out at night, and they drag drug users from their homes. They drag uh, low-level drug dealers from their homes. I actually went out with them as they were doing this, um, and... Um, yeah, I felt very conflicted about it. How much do you know about Myanmar? Formerly Burma. It's got a pretty big drug trade and it's got a lot of other things going on as well. I must admit I didn't know that much. So thankfully, Patrick Wynn, he's the author of Head Over Shadowlands from Icon Books. He's going to join me and he's going to tell me a whole lot about the region. Southeast Asia, Myanmar, the Philippines. There's a lot to talk about. Here we go. Behind you. Thank you so much for joining us again on Stop and Search. As I said, we're joined by Patrick Wynn. He is an investigative journalist. He is the author of Hello Shadowlands. Now, this is an incredible book. It really is. It gives us a big overview of what's going on in the crime syndicates of Southeast Asia. But it also isolates down into what's going on in certain countries like Myanmar, the Philippines. There is so much going on and yet we're just not having these big conversations. We, we speak early on in this episode how Netflix and documentaries are made about drug cartels. And yet we always neglect Southeast Asia, even though they've got a huge great crime syndicate. So why is that? So that's our first point of discussion. Now, Patrick is an award-winning writer, producer, documentary maker. But he also lives out in Bangkok and he's been there for about a decade. And he's very, very keen to point out that he doesn't want to do what some... Western journalists do, which is parachute in, parachute out. He's there, he's based there. He wants to make sure that he tells individual stories. He wants to make sure that people on the ground are telling their own stories. So that's why I'm really grateful for Patrick to join us. So let's get straight on with this episode and talk about what is actually going on in Southeast Asia. I'm in Chatham House with Patrick Wynne, who is the author of Hello Shadowlands, which I'm not just saying it because you're in front of me, but oh my goodness, it is an amazing book. I thought I knew the drug trade, being doing what I'm doing, but then I go and read a book like yours and I realise I've got to chuck all my prior knowledge out the window and realise that there's so many gaps, especially in Southeast Asia, which is what your book focuses on. And I asked you just before we started, do you think I'm a typical example of a Western and it's neglected Southeast Asia because I'm so focused on Mexico the drug trades are happening in the crossovers into America that I just don't have that necessarily on my radar. Are we neglecting this information? Yeah, and I don't think it's really your fault. Um, it's certainly not in the international media in any big way. I mean, the world's largest meth trade is in Southeast Asia, and it's not uh, it's seldom acknowledged. Um, and it's not in the pop culture. I mean, there's no narcos for uh, warlords in the mountainous hills of Myanmar. There's no... Um, 
you know, Goodfellas style mafia, Cosa Nostra style movies that kind of make make it seem relevant to people. It's just not in the in the Hollywood drama thing. These narratives just aren't out there. So no, uh, yes, you are typical. No, it's not your fault. <laughs> so so how did you get started on the book? Is it, I know that you've got um, personal experience in the region. Is that how you got initial interest or did you have prior knowledge? Well, I've been reporting in Southeast Asia for 10 years. It'll be 10 years uh, next month. And I've noticed that I've always gravitated towards stories about crime. And I don't mean you know, in the true crime sense of crime. Like, I, I'm not very interested in uh, disturbed killers or anything like that. I'm actually interested in the logistics of criminal operations, the people that get uh, swept up into that world, how they evade police, why they do it. Um, and so, yeah, probably about year five, working in Southeast Asia, living in Bangkok specifically, I started to notice that I had just drifted towards those types of stories. And um, then the most recent five years started taking it more seriously and trying to really uncover things that weren't being talked about, really try and identify who's making all the methamphetamine. Because when I looked around for other reports on this, they weren't there. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do it. And this this is the thing that struck me about your book is it, it's really diverse. What what you've done is you stripped it into I think five chapters, um, two of which we'll focus on specifically because they are the drug trade, but also other things as well. Like the chapter I'm reading at the moment is about North Korean song girls, which again is completely gap in my knowledge. But again, it's so fascinating that that area is covered and I had no idea about it. Um, do you find that there is more than meets the eye within the regions that you because you know first of all what are the regions that you cover in this book because they are quite diverse yeah so just to lay it out very quickly uh over in myanmar there's himalayan foothills and mountains there and then if you move from there to thailand cambodia and laos this is more of a jungly starting to get a little flatter vietnam on the coast below all that is this archipelago of indonesia and that ends in the philippines which is another seven thousand islands all told about 10 countries um, that are uh, betwixt uh, China and India, and that's Southeast Asia. And I really don't stray too far from that region. You mentioned North Koreans. Um, North, North Korea operates criminal syndicates through its state enterprises, and they have a lot of dealings in Southeast Asia. So that's how I kind of plugged into North Korea because... Anything, all things North Korea are interesting, right? So I couldn't resist. And I think we have got a, a fascination in the West with North Korea, which you completely lay out in your book, don't you? Is that we have, we've got, they're, they're almost quite literally an alien culture to us still, aren't they? Uh, I think I said in the book that they're the most exoticized uh, people in, in the world through Western eyes. Uh, everything about them we find either lurid or interesting or dubious and it's just they they are quite mysterious and the mass media you know like the daily mail style mass media feeds off that and just pumps out really bad information i mean it's it's not some sort of conspiracy theory it's just any wacky thing about north korea they'll run with without checking and it's brilliant because you can't just phone north korea and say hey is this true because there's no relationship, you know. If you said something that was completely outlandish about the government of, of Thailand, um, I could give you a number to call, and you could, you could call a spokesman, and he could tell you whether or not it was true. Um, in North Korea, you don't have that person. So the newspapers and just get to run wild, and the websites get to run wild. And I think North Korea is a good example, along with um, a lot of the other regions that you mentioned in the book, of how state markets and the black markets there's so many different inter, inter interconnections of that and it's so entwined and in a way that's both fascinating and terrifying at the same time and i think the best example is in um, myanmar which is just again i had so much gaps in my knowledge and reading your book i didn't realize how much of the meth trade ended up in the united states and and or the heroin trade rather, but specifically it's focused on the meth trade to start with. How much meth is produced in Myanmar? Right, so first we have to explain that it's sold differently in, in Asia than it's sold in the UK or the United States. They make crystal meth, that's the stuff you see on Breaking Bad. 
Um, but the most popular product from the entire underworld of Southeast Asia is this pill called Yaba, which in Thai means crazy medicine. And it's about 20% methamphetamine with some caffeine thrown in. It's almost invariably pink in color, and it smells like vanilla cake frosting. You described that really well on the boat. <laughs> I mean, what, have you actually smelled it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Can, can in, you describe that? Uh, again, vanilla cake frosting. You know, it's, it's kind of like a sickly, sweet smell. You know, not like high-quality vanilla ice cream, but like cheapo 7-Eleven vanilla cookies or something like that. Um I would love to, if anyone listening to this can tell me what is that chemical that makes it smell like that, I'm all ears, but I've yet to figure it out. We need to do some sort of scratch and sniff podcast, don't we, what we can get. <laughs> it, it's, very, it's very fragrant. So let's focus on the pills, the yaba. Uh, the, the various militias in Myanmar are producing between two and six billion pills of yaba per year. And I like to put that into context by saying um, Starbucks does not sell that many cups of coffee worldwide in a year. Uh, in fact, they, that, that's let's go with the low estimate of two billion. That's a roughly triple the number of coffees that Starbucks sells. Just as a point of example, and McDonald's doesn't sell that many Big Macs, so it's a lot. Um, and then collectively, these militias are making so much money because you can produce one of these pills for pennies. And then the street price, if you go to buy it on the street, is like 10 bucks, depending on where you live. So tell me another product with that markup. I, you know, you can't. It's insane. How widespread would you say the trade is in Myanmar? Is it as big as those figures indicate? Well, most of it's leaving Myanmar. It's an export drug. If you look in the backyards of the militias that are producing it, uh, these are low population areas that are, you know, War zones, it doesn't mean there's always fighting. It's not like Syria, but it's um, rebel territory that can be struck at any time. Okay, so it's very dysfunctional and chaotic. You look in the backyards, yeah, there's a lot of people doing it because it's so cheap. Right at the doorstep of the factory and in the environs nearby, you can buy methamphetamine pill for like $2. So even the poorest farmer can afford it. They're doing it. Down in the rest of the country the military has a firmer grip on the society and they don't allow it to spread. So I would not cite Myanmar as this great consumer. I would cite China and Thailand as the big consumer, Malaysia to a degree as well. Um, they are just uh, devouring the stuff. And increasingly it's going over to Bangladesh, which is a Muslim-majority country on the other side of Myanmar. They've seen seizures of these pills by police go up by 80,000% mind-boggling figures. So, yeah, that's that's who's consuming it. And other re- other countries in the region are consuming it too. It might not necessarily come from Myanmar. So, so, so who is going to be profiting from this trade? Is it going to be is the state profiting at all or is it all going to individual dealers? What's what's the general setup? Most of the profits are being devoured by the militias themselves. And all of them, well, at least the major players, will have a relationship with Myanmar's army, which is the most powerful institution in the country, bar none, um, and until very recently run, ran every aspect of the government. So the army will let them produce drugs. In return, they have to not side with the rebel groups that they're fighting, and they have to sometimes fight the rebel groups together. One former DEA agent uh, in Myanmar said they're kind of like cannon fodder, these militias. But anyway, they have turf that they can protect and produce these drugs, and they absorb all the profits. Now, does the military produce drugs itself? It's kind of a tricky distinction because it's more like their allied adjacent militias produce it. But when the stuff is getting trafficked out of these remote areas, to the destination, Thailand, China, wherever. It will go through army checkpoints and there will probably be payoffs along the way. Somehow, mid-level to top-level officers in Myanmar's army will pocket a little money, but most of the money is being made by the 
militia itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And also, I, I always wonder how does how does the average citizen fit into this? Are they consumers? Are they? Is anybody profiting from the trade within those black market and grey markets? Just how is the the little man in quotation marks? How are they affected? Yeah, I mean, so someone, let's go with Bangkok where I live. Um, if I really wanted some yaba or crystal meth, um, I would order it by motorbike. I don't smoke meth for the record, but if I did, I'm just saying it's that easy to find. I would place a call and someone would bring it to me by motorbike. And that guy gets paid. Whoever the trafficker is that got it to Bangkok gets paid even more. And then there will be probably people in towns and cities along the way who are part of that trafficking network who may not have any relationship with the militias. You know, um, it's like if a T-shirt is produced in Bangladesh, um, the, 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 the store in the mall that's selling it doesn't have any relationship with the factory. It has a long supply chain. So when I say that um, heroin and meth together, the Myanmar-centered drugs trade with heroin and meth together is making $40 billion a year, that's including the money that that dealer made bringing the stuff on the motorbike to the guy in Bangkok, and that's including the warlord as well. That is a big figure, isn't it? When you look at the global drug trade and how much that's worth, that's a big chunk of it. We're, we're looking at 320 billion ish, aren't we, for the global drug trade? So 40 billion. That's a significant amount, and yet we're not really addressing these in the in the terms I said at the beginning of this conversation. We're still obviously focused on Mexico and places like that. But as regards to poppy production as well, there's a lot of that that goes on, isn't there? And that is what's what you say in the book is filtering into the American market. Well, I know that it used to in a big way. Um, the American market, as I understand it, and I want to give a caveat, I know a little bit less about my own country's <laughs> drug market than Southeast Asia's. I understand that a lot of the heroin on the East Coast of the U.S. is that powdery gray stuff That's uh, a lot of it's coming from Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, again, as I understand it, um, has created so much chaos that the, the drug production there, poppy production there has, has boomed. And so they're getting a lot of that stuff, and that's probably, I assume, what's coming to Europe. And then on the West Coast, you get a lot of this stuff made in Mexico, which we call black tar heroin. Um, it looks like, you know, mouse shit. <laughs> it's like brown, gooey stuff. Um, that's circulating more through the West Coast. How much of the stuff in Myanmar is getting to the United States or other countries? I'm not sure now because they have so many willing customers nearby. 30, 40 years ago, there just weren't that many, as many people in Southeast Asia that could even afford heroin. Like It was primarily agricultural society. You live on a farm, you're not near the heroin dealer, and you don't even really handle much cash. You kind of grow what you eat. Um, now, no. I mean, so many people are in the cash economy and, and are potential buyers of heroin. So that's my understanding. And presumably it's grown organically in within the region is there been much in the way of american trying to intervene and do eradication programs because it happens a lot within other regions like mexico Has it happened within that region yeah the dea <laughs> it's amazing uh when myanmar's army committed one of its worst abuses in 1988 and cracked down on a pro-democracy movement and killed thousands of people the united states pulled back a little bit the whole world did and that begins the whole narrative of Burma slash Myanmar, the evil uh, military regime, which we have heard a lot of rhetoric about that. All these American aid agencies, American you know arms of government pull pull out of the country. The DEA managed to stick around. It's phenomenal. If you ask them, why do you even need to be in in Myanmar? They'll say, well, you know, some of the stuff might make it to America. I don't know. I think they just they can be there and they like to have a large global footprint and so they're there. I don't know how they've managed to hang in there, but they 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 have so even today the money dried up for a long time and then recently as Myanmar has sort of reinvented itself as a democracy, which I don't want to get off track too much. I can talk about why that's dubious, but um now that it's done that, the United States is lending money to Myanmar's homegrown war on drugs, which is 
kind of a joke, but they are lending a little bit of cash and credibility to that effort. That's a brilliant segue because this is really concerning. You know, what I've read within your book, and again, the gaps in my knowledge that I completely hold my hands up to is just how much Myanmar has ramped up its homegrown war on drugs um, to horrific levels. I mean, there's there's even slang, isn't there, that's that's been derived from that whole practice um and also just like i mean you described one of this the in quotation mark rehab clinics there uh, can you can you explain what they're like because i think you used the word part gulag part bible camp which <laughs> okay. i think is just perfect okay so these are people in these in the backyards of the army and they say no one's bringing us any help we're screwed they're screwing us let's do something ourselves because they are christians predominantly they have a network of different churches throughout the region, and they've collaborated and formed this vigilante group that is affiliated with various churches. So you get the, the younger guys at the church. Um, they put on little helmets. They have these little uh, camouflage uniforms, and they go out at night, and they drag drug users from their homes. They drag uh, low-level drug dealers from their homes. I actually went out with them as they were doing this, um, and... Um, yeah, I felt very conflicted about it. but You, you really make a good case of that in the book. You say how much that you, even though you have the, you know a very rounded position on this, you, you still have that adrenaline rush as you went out on the motorbikes and in the, you know, the, the revelry of the, of the procession, didn't you? Yeah, I tried to be honest about how it felt. You, know, you felt like kind of, you, kind of that mob mentality, you felt like you're part of like a pack. And they all genuinely, you know, these these. Guys, not predominantly guys, but some women, they thought they were doing something good. They thought they were fighting evil. And uh, this is not my point of view at all when I look at drugs, but the energy was uh, infectious. So uh, it's a little embarrassing, but that's how it felt. We went into, um, well, I should say, I followed them as they went into someone's house, pulled the guy out. Uh, handcuffed him, or they rather they tied this plastic ties around his thumbs. He was very compliant. Took him to this sort of outbuilding uh, of a church in the middle of the night and interrogated him quite viciously and beat him with a bamboo rod um, until he admitted that he was a drug user. And then they put him in leg stocks like you would see in a medieval. Um, drawing uh, like wooden leg stocks and held him there until they could determine what they wanted to do with him and that must have been bizarre to see that with your own eyes to actually witness that degree of persecution on on a ordinary citizen that probably is within impoverished conditions that are potentially using drugs as an escape route you know you can imagine i can or can completely empathize how that must have conflicted within you sure i don't i didn't want this guy to get beat up didn't have a lot going for him anyway. Um, I know and love people who continue to use drugs. I don't think they deserve to get dragged out of their house in front of their kids and beaten with a stick. So, no, it, it was wrong. Um, if I could try and add some nuance, when the police in a country like Thailand or Myanmar pull you out of your house, they're not your friends. They're going to throw you in a prison in the Philippines increasingly we see they might shoot you um, to just wipe you out. So that's one thing. These vigilantes thought that they were helping these guys. I never thought that they were going to get their bamboo sticks and maim them or, or beat them bloody. It was somewhere in the vein of a super ramped up wrapping of the knuckles by the nun type of thing. Uh, I think that they were hyped up on adrenaline, but they also felt that they were doing the right thing. So I don't, um, this is not an excuse. You take anyone's community and you, you, through warfare and drug lords and, you know, state-imposed chaos, make a mess of their community and strange things are going to happen. I, I find it hard to blame them. You, you do, you have to have that, that looking over the fence of what the other position is doing. And as you say, 
they're Christian, they believe in a certain purity of their system and, and that's what they're acting on. So as much as, you know, to, to certainly my eyes it looks horrific, you also do have to have a degree of understanding of what those people are. I think that they're doing the right thing by their countrymen. And I think you've hinted on it within that answer, but it's, it's obviously a very religious country, would, would you say? Extremely. Um, and it's getting seemingly more religious in a more dogmatic way. Uh, the minority groups in the hills of Myanmar, many of them are Christian, and they strongly identify with uh, Christianity because it sets them apart from the dominant ethnic group down in the plains and the hills who are... I want to make a distinction here between everyday people and the military. The military is Burmese, and the people in the lowland populated areas are Burmese. But the military um, is what I'm talking about when I'm saying something, you know, um, how do I say this? Because the ethnic groups are Christian and the, the people who are making their lives miserable also happen to be Burmese and Buddhist, they make a very strong distinction. The Buddhist... Burmese who are in the military have a very strong nationalistic, jingoistic feeling about, you know, religion and country as well. And it seems to be getting even more severe. And, and how do the police play a role within this? Because, again, the police force to a Westerner's eyes is, is one thing, but to regions like this, I think you, you more than hint within the book that a lot of bribery and things almost prop up a lot of people's wages within the police. Yeah, um, this is true throughout almost the entire region. Um, if you're a police officer, you might make a couple hundred dollars a month, depending on which country you're in. These are not high wages. That's really not enough to, to, have a, to support a family on, not in any good way. The state will allow this to happen because they know bribes are coming in and pooled within the police department. The a police officer that's making a couple hundred bucks a month on paper is actually making a couple hundred extra dollars, even if he's a beat cop, through bribery. And the bribes are coming from criminal syndicates. And so the police view the criminal syndicates as their real clientele and not everyday poor people who they're meant to defend. So the state is essentially offloading its personnel cost onto the underworld. And that's why it's so entrenched, and that's why I don't see it changing anytime soon. And what is the relationship between the police and what you call um, the abduction squads, which, I mean, how do you pronounce it? How... Uh, Pat Jassan. I had it written down. I, was, I think, Thankfully, you got to pronounce it. <laughs> um, but what is the relationship between those two um, institutions? Do they work in tandem? Are they against each other? No, 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 they don't. Um, Pat Jassan is a, a Christian uh, ethnic ethnically identified group. I should just say that the name of this ethnic group are the Kachin people. It's about a million people that live in the northernmost reaches of Myanmar. Uh, if you're with Pakistan, you hate the police. You see the police as your oppressors, as almost like colonial oppressors that have come to your homeland and are ordering you around. So the police don't like Pakistan, but Pakistan, these vigilantes, are mostly beating up other Kachin people because that's who's around, that's who's doing the drugs, and they don't give a shit, uh, whatever, beat up your own people, we don't care. As I was leaving the area, I heard more and more talk about these vigilantes ramping up and going after the drug lords and cutting down their poppy stalks just to, you know, mm. just to make, create some difficulty for these drug lords that they despise. And after I left, that did start happening and people started to die uh, and get shot at as they were going to hack down the poppies. So there you saw the police informing on the vigilantes, telling the drug lords, I'm speculating a little bit here, but this is what I believe happened, saying they're coming, they're coming up this route, they got about 300 people, they got about 1,000 people, just letting you know. Okay, cool, we got them. So. And interestingly, the, the guide stroke interpreter that you worked with at the beginning of the book was connected to police quite heavily. Yeah, the, the person from whom I got much of my information was a Kachin guy, so a local guy, who was affiliated with the local police department, and he was sort of their liaison to the local scene. Because the cops are imported from the plains and the delta up into the mountains. They don't speak the local language. They tend to view the locals with hostility, and they need, you know, an interpreter. 
and a guide. I'm sure you could find parallels in the British Empire, you know, Very much having, so. having uh, you know, sort of local lackeys that are the go-betweens. Yeah. And what was it like meeting people on the ground? Was, was there any reticence on their part in, in speaking to a journalist, a Western journalist at that? Or did, was you quite well received? Um, it depends on... Uh, it depended. You know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have as much trouble as you might imagine getting people to talk. Uh, I had some trouble getting uh, embedded with the vigilantes. Um, they have this natural affinity for Americans because they were Christianized by American missionaries. So there's an easy rapport there. And, of course, one of the first questions they asked me is like, oh, you're Christian, right? And I would kind of half-ass it and say, well, I was raised Christian. I'm not going to say, no, I'm an atheist and just kill my access. Um, so, yeah, they were skeptical of me. I think there's... this. This is a place where conspiracy theories are just circulating in the air. They probably wanted to know that I wasn't affiliated with with the government or the state. And once they were satisfied that I wasn't um, and that I was acknowledging how awful these drug lords, these warlords are, who are their prime enemies, they thought, okay, this guy seems okay. And then they let me come out with them. So the average citizen that would be... You know, obviously domestically based, what would their view be of the current situation around drugs? Who would be, as you just hinted at there, be looked upon as the oppressor, who is, in straight quotation marks and rudimentary, per, who's the good guys, who do they actually trust in? You mean in these mountain areas? Okay, um, well, they trust themselves. Okay, they have their own uh, miniature armies who are really quite skilled. These are like high-quality guerrilla soldiers, uh, with thousands of people and a, a hierarchy of officers and grunts and generals and the uniforms and the whole thing. So they really look to their own society and they don't look out for, for much help, frankly. Um, they're going to be skeptical of the Chinese government and Chinese army, which is on the other side of the mountain range, but they view as the principal oppressors, the bad guys, the people that are making their life difficult. I'm speaking in general terms here as the Burmese military and anything associated with the state. And I will say this, they are pretty good about differentiating a regular Burmese guy who's just going to work or driving his taxi or working on the farm as not seeing him as evil or sinister. Um, they are pretty good at differentiating and saying, oh, you're with the state, you're dubious, you're just a trader coming through town, selling your stuff, you're cool, you know. So how do you think it's going to play out from this point on, with especially the abduction squads? Do you think they're going to start ramping up? Do you think there's going to be more? You've hinted that there is probably death coming out of these squads now. Do you think it's going to get worse from this point? I think it could. Um, I recently talked to someone. You know, I've kind of been hunkered down writing this book, and I haven't been back up there in a, in a while. I uh, recently talked to someone who had been there more recently, and they said that the level of public support for the vigilantes seemed to be very high. And then if you were to stop a random person on the street and ask them about what the vigilantes are doing, they'd say, yeah, they're good. They're good. What that tells me is that the vigilantes haven't resorted to uh, becoming, uh, quote-unquote, criminals. Or they, they're not fleecing people. They're not extorting people. They're not taking people's money when they abduct them from their homes. So they've made at least the, the, the appearance of piety so far. Um, the drug trade isn't going anywhere, and that's what they exist to ultimately defeat. So it could get worse. It just depends on if they can uh, maintain their momentum. And from what you describe, it, the drug trade probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon, is it? Because of the way it's propping up the legitimate GDP there almost. You, know, the, you say in the book that there's the, the deal between the rebels and the army essentially gives free license to deal in the black market because it's so intertwined. Is Is there any way of segregating that relationship or is that pretty much there to stay it's there to stay uh, i think the official exports coming out of myanmar are valued at 12 billion and as i mentioned the heroin and meth trade is valued at 40 billion okay the, the official figures coming out of the government are absurd this is their main export and it's not being taxed shit i know that drugs do cause a lot of problems in many people's lives i get that um, well, 
that's happening and it's not being taxed. It'd be nice if it was at least taxed and you could build some hospitals out of it, some schools. It's all going into the hands of uh, warlords. So the, if the warlords had some sort of mutual fund on the stock <laughs> index, that it would be forecasted for their profits to increase. It would be a good investment. I don't think that they're going anywhere. And as the economy booms overall in Southeast Asia, you just have more people, there are potential buyers. You know, most people are not going to get into meth. They got stuff to do. They got kids to raise. They're just not going to be interested. But the portion of society that is, that will grow and there'll be more people to sell to. And, and the UN are pretty good on their figures um, to support case for reform at least, but just as the same as we've seen with other regions, that 99, 90 to 95% of the meth trade has never ceased and goes back to the streets. That's what they think, yeah. Which That's what agents I, I talk to will say, even people that don't know each other, that seems to be some common <laughs> trope among drug enforcement agents. And as you say, that's going to the black market. That's yeah. not getting taxed and it's not building and it's not doing anything to the infrastructure of those potentially vulnerable regions, are they? No, not at all. And these people very badly need clinics and hospitals and roads. And it's really sad because they have come to view, especially these uh, armed ethnic groups, they've come to view development itself with suspicion. I'm talking about a new paved road they're like, I don't know about that, because every time someone builds a new paved road in my region, it brings a lot of soldiers. Every time someone wants to come in and build like a hydro plant, we get kicked off our land and we don't get a cut of it, and all the energy goes to China. So they have this different view of development that is, I think, really hard for us to understand. What a position to be in, though, to have that degree of skepticism over things that potentially are going to be good for infrastructure, just purely based on the on the survival instincts of this of, well it was just it's just amazing that as you said as westerners it's it's a completely different set of circumstances to what we can conceive isn't it it is i remember talking to someone in uh what is called a black zone in myanmar this is a, a what a zone that is considered to be so rebellious that everyone there is a terrorist i think using the army vernacular um so i went there and of course people were lovely um but one man who was talking about making homemade landmines. Um, a conversation went from his landmines he was making out of bamboo and how he plants them and everything. And I said, don't you think this is going to hurt development? And he's like, well, development, why, why do I want development? It, it never works out for us. And that moment, that probably happened in, say, 2012, that just something switched in my brain. And I realized, you know, how how unfortunate the situation was, how badly the army had screwed up society such that development was seen as menacing. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong about that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I think you describe what it's like being on the ground perfectly because what stood out to me within Hello Shadowlands is the way you describe the Philippines and as someone that's never travelled, you know, I've pretty much never set foot outside the country of, of the UK, to to understand what it's like to be within those regions of especially the climate, the weather, how, you know, oppressive it may feel. But also, I mean, you describe in the book of being in the Philippines, you have to get used to having sweat on your shirt, <laughs> but not even from your own, it's just from mixing with people in the street. Um, what is it like to be in those environments? Yeah, well, having lived in Bangkok for 10 years, I, I might be the worst person to ask because I'm uh, completely, uh, uh, well, I'm certainly used to s- sweating and bumping into people and sweating on other people and all that. Um, I think this might be a good time to mention that, you know, I don't just plop down and suddenly know everything. No matter where I'm going, I'm working with someone who lives there and as much as possible, I try to incorporate this in the book so you see that I'm I'm learning from my journalistic colleague on the ground who may be uh, Filipino or Filipina or maybe from this Kachin region in Myanmar and we're together and we're and I'm often picking up information along the way. In other words, in the hierarchy of who knows what's going on, I'm at the bottom and they're at the top and I like to be really clear about that because Western journalists love to just parachute in and they know everything and there's no acknowledgement of how they came up upon that information in the final report. I'm garbage without my network of fellow journalists from these places. Completely useless. And uh, as much as possible, I tried to convey that in this book. I'm, I'm less able to do that in the reports that I write for for other outlets. But in the book, I had time to really explain how I figured this stuff out. And, and in the chapter in, on the Philippines, I think you really had your work cut out for you in trying to find people that were... The subject matter you took on within that is it's a different war on drugs. I mean, we, hopefully most people who are listening to this are familiar with the war on drugs that's happening in the Philippines under Duterte. Potentially 10,000 people or more have been killed under extrajudicial killings, um, which we'll touch upon. But what's interesting about the drug war you focus on is about something completely different. Um and to find the the fixes that to deal with that because it's such a tricky subject must have been very hard. So, first of all, what is that war on drugs that we're talking about there? It's a war on contraceptive drugs, any substance that can help a woman prevent or terminate a pregnancy. Uh, the Philippines is one of the most Catholic countries you'll find, and the Catholic Church is extraordinarily powerful, has legislative power, has uh, uh, um, judicial power, and one of their main goals is to limit contraception. So abortion, forget about it. That's like in the Constitution, illegal, no way. Um, Birth control pills, they want to make it as hard as possible to get your hands on them. So this is a war on drugs that primarily affects women. So I go into that with a a huge disadvantage um, because, well, one, I'm a foreigner and I'm a guy, and so the person that I team up with to explore this um, underground trade in, uh, it, well, let me just explain. There's an underground trade to satisfy demand for women that do want contraceptives. And a lot of it is herbal stuff like elixirs and potions that can um, terminate a pregnancy. And so the women that operate this trade, because it's primarily women, are operate like drug dealers. They use slang. They... Uh, have to bribe the cops. Um, they have to sort of slink around in the shadows. So going in to report on that, I teamed up with a woman in her 50s, Rika Concepcion, awesome journalist. Um, just, she's like she's like the OG <laughs> journalist in, in the Philippines. I was really lucky to work with her. And I relied on her a lot to understand what it would be like to be in that situation. Um were I a woman, the chapter might be better. There might be some insights. There still might be some things that I missed. But that was, I, ha- I had to do the story. I didn't see anyone else doing it. So I, I did my best to go in with someone who could really help me deliver. It's certainly not something I've seen reported widely. And, and again, I thought I knew the region ish. But again, this is a whole other realm that I was completely unaware of is the not only extent to get contraception, but also the next stage on women that want to encourage abortion the 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 lengths 
that they have to go to both through a moral ground because of as you said it's so catholic there but also just obtaining these the elixirs or the drugs to do that and again this is we're not having this conversation at all are we over here no and that that's a story that has a very strong western angle i mean the philippines was colonized first by the spanish then by uh, the americans and the uh the, the power of the Vatican is just radiates in the Philippines, and so these are ways that I, you know, I don't think this is a difficult story to understand as a Westerner, even if you don't know much about the Philippines, you can grasp the story. So it should be ready made for the international market. We should care more than we do. Um, but as you said, you hadn't heard of it, so. And even the World Health Organization has started giving harm reduction advice on. There's certain, I think they're ulcer tablets, aren't they, that can encourage abortion. And because of the, the nature of what's going on in the Philippines with this whole subject, and it's a big, broad subject, isn't it, that the, the World Health Organization are actually giving some harm reduction advice on how to use these tablets to do and achieve the goals that certain women are trying to achieve. So when you've got the, the who involved, surely we should be having more of a conversation on this. Uh, just um, especially now the domestic, we've kind of retreated into ourselves and domestic politics seem to really uh, suck up all the oxygen in, in the UK, I, I gather, from afar. Certainly in the United States, uh, our, you know, whatever Trump tweeted that day. You know, the American media have trouble even squeezing in a report about some atrocities in, say, Syria, a place where the the U.S. has spent, you know, a billion dollars to to encourage regime change. The CIA has rather direct links between what your tax money is doing and awful stuff happening around the world. That's a hard story to sell. So you want to talk about poor women and reproductive needs in the Philippines? There's just like no bandwidth for that. And. I mean, Duterte's drug war, we've got to touch upon it because it's just such a big issue now. Thankfully, you know, people have started latching onto this. Um, and this is where the slang, you know, we, we spoke of earlier starts coming in. You know, there are kill squads. And uh, I think you put in your book, um, the police don't tend to knock. So if you get a knock at the door, it tends to be uh, of a certain band of people that you don't want to answer the door to. And that is called... And again, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Tokang. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's, uh, as if I recall correctly, I don't speak Tagalog. Or I think that's actually a Visayan word. It's another language group in the Philippines. Uh, to knock and plead, something like that. Well, it's quite the opposite. They often don't knock. They kick in your door and they don't plead. They drag you out and shoot you. And this is an effort to wipe out the junkies and the the junkies well, as the president of the Philippines puts it, he's, he's blamed everything on them. They're like these agents of chaos that are preventing the country from flourishing. And if we just wipe them out, you know, then the Philippines will have a brighter future. And I think it's really similar to the way, um, uh, say, Nigel Farage or Trump talks about immigrants. It just All these things get blamed on them. They're all rapists, you know. Duterte, the president of the Philippines, says the same thing about the meth users. You know they're all rapists. So it really, they've become this other that if, if purged can lead to a brighter future. And that is the main trade at the moment, isn't it, is meth. That tends to be oh, yeah. the, the, the drug of choice for people. Is that a, a socioeconomic reason? Is it, where is that meth coming from predominantly within the Philippines? That's a great question. Um, I think I could do a better job of wrapping my head around that. But this is what I know. Um, it's not coming from Myanmar. It's really far. Uh, Myanmar to the Philippines is like going from here to Siberia. It's really far um, uh, a, a supply chain. A lot of it is coming from the Chinese mainland, and some of it is being produced in the Philippines by uh, Chinese mafia. This is a subject which I hope to better understand in the future. A lot of the financing of the methamphetamine trade is done by mafia based in China. It takes some expertise, and it takes some logistical skills to, to run this stuff. Oftentimes, the militia in Myanmar doesn't have the skills to open a meth lab, which is kind of complicated, but the cert certain mafia do, and they will come open it for them and share profits. I think there's a similar thing happening in, uh, in the Philippines. So 
they are providing a lot of the supply. Is the supply being harmed by the killing of 10,000 users and low-level dealers? No. The price of methamphetamine on the streets of the Philippines has stayed roughly the same, 30 to $80, depending on who your dealer is. Um, maybe it's gone up a little bit, but it hasn't gone up a lot. And that just shows you that the arteries and the, the, the pipelines of the trade are intact. So why did we just kill 10,000 people? It, it's, it's for nothing. It's for politics. Is it for the media show? Because Duterte is a, is a front man, isn't he? He's very much someone that knows how to use the media. And his approval rating is quite high, isn't it? Yeah, there may be um, Filipino nationals listening to me talk that think I don't know what I'm talking about and I don't understand how bad the problem is and um, you know I have no right to talk, say anything bad about Duterte. He's the best thing that's ever happened in the Philippines. You know, there's a lot of people that will say that. I will say there's also a lot of Filipinos that I talk to in whispers who are not happy about what's going on at all and are quite scared for the future of their country. And... Unfortunately, this sort of nationalism has become so prominent in the in the, the Philippine media that it seems to be drowning out the the doubters and the people who are afraid. And that is a good point, actually. That to certainly, and I'm speaking only for myself here, that it seems a horrific set of circumstances that's going on in the Philippines. It's something that we're very concerned about. But we do get on social media a lot of people that live in the region that say that we don't know what we're talking about, we have no idea because we're not there. And we do have to be humble to the fact that, you know, we don't know. We're not there on the ground. So we are not on the feedback that's coming through. So it must be very strange for you as a Western journalist to go out there and be faced with this this very difficult situation and try and unravel it. Did you have any preconception of it before you got there? In the Philippines specifically? Mm. Uh, well, I knew that I had expected to, after I went there following the election of Duterte in 2016, I was well prepared that he was going to be very popular. And when I got there, that was very much confirmed. Um, people on the street, talking to people in the markets, they were actually very interested to know, like, hey, what do you, what do you think about Duterte? Um, I think in the book I compare it to shortly after the election of Trump, and even now, it seems like in casual conversation, you can't go five minutes, somehow he comes up. It's just he's a more popular topic than the weather and it feels like that in the philippines now 10 minutes go by somehow duterte pops up in the conversation he's just so um he provides such sensational lurid content for the media that you, you have to be like did you hear what he said did you hear what he said and to a lot of people it's refreshing and you know now I'll get in trouble with the other side for saying this. Duterte has some policies that maybe are breaking the mold in a good way. Yeah, and again, that's something I wasn't particularly aware of. You know, there's there's a lot on, for instance, LGBT that yeah. potentially is, is quite a good thing. Um, so he's, he's, he's a strange character, isn't he? And as you mentioned, Trump. Trump put in a famous phone call fairly recently to congratulate him on the war on drugs. How do you, how do you think that plays out within both the UK and the US, do you think that we're we taking it seriously, what's going on in the Philippines with the amount of deaths that are happening, or are we going to get more polarisation through you know the Trumpisms that we're just seeing with the way he's praising Duterte? I mean, look, I think you could find a fair number of people in the States, especially in my home state, uh, North Carolina, which is in the South, um, where you would have people taking that sort of hardcore moralistic stand they're drug dealers well good maybe they shouldn't have done drugs so this isn't unique to filipinos um that phone call in which trump said to duterte you're doing a great job amazing stuff love the drug war great uh i i don't want to be too dramatic and say it was some tipping point in american foreign policy but it was one of many sharp turns where you just you would not have had a, a, another president democrat or republican saying it quite like that. Um, you hear that as the president of the Philippines, a country that has been propped up by the United States for a very long time, and you think, I'm good. This is not a problem. I'm not going to encounter any friction from the U.S. Cool. The world's largest economy, uh, the world's most powerful country, 
they got me. Cool. So, yeah, it's harmful. Uh, and we mentioned just how Catholic the Philippines are. What is the relationship between Duterte and the Catholic Church? <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, wow, I wish I could remember exactly what he said about them, but he, he's you know really slagged off priest. He's come out and said that he was molested as a child by a priest, called out the guy by name. Um, other interesting views he has, you mentioned LGBT. I mean, he's not really waving the rainbow flag, but he will say like, eh, who cares? That's pretty progressive for uh, a Philippine president in a very strictly Catholic nation. And also seems to be on the other side of defense on the contraception issue as well. It seems to be more aligned to a progressive way of thinking than the Catholic way of thinking. He thinks that every woman in the Philippines uh, who wants contraception, no matter what her income, deserves it. Well, I agree. And I think that that is uh, something that most people around me would agree with. Um, he is pushing back against that. So I'm, I'm all about embracing complexity. And I think that we have to acknowledge where he gets things right as well. So is the Catholic Church battle, is that here to stay? Do you think it's going to continue or will there be any kind of reconciliation between the two? Um, so since I wrote the book, it looks like the Catholic Church has suffered a blow and it will become a little bit easier to circulate uh, contraception. Um, what really matters is if the government is allowed to circulate contraception because so many women just can't afford it. So that's what's really going to tip tip the scale. Um, the church, it appears, has really dug in on this and they will not give up. When I was writing this, it looked like it was highly possible that birth control pills would become pretty much unavailable by 2020. I'm not quite sure that that's going to be the outcome anymore, but the church is probably regrouping and trying to figure out their next steps. They're not just going to drop this. I better wrap up now because you're we're in Chatham House and you're due on in about half an hour to... What, what is the event about? Uh, it's about uh, organized crime in Southeast Asia. I, Perfect. I, the, the event organizer, uh, Champa Patel, who uh, works here at Chatham House... Um, was keen on the book, and she's really great. She used to be with Amnesty International in Southeast Asia. She knows the terrain really well, and so, uh, as I understand it, they wanted to organize a panel around that subject. And so, yeah, I'm at Chatham House, very posh. I'm kind of <laughs> my head spinning, <laughs> and I'm I'm pleased to be on the guest list to watch it as well. So I'm looking forward to that. And I, I genuinely, I'm not just saying it because you're in front of me, but I genuinely can't recommend the book Hello Shadowlands enough. It is so enlightening and and also you've written it in such a style that even though i've made tons of notes and it slowed me down in fully reading it it's such a conversational style as well so thank you so much for putting that into terms that i can understand thank you so much yeah to anyone listening if you're interested um the book is trying to look at the criminal underworld in southeast asia which is booming through the eyes of people that are involved in it the jihadis traffickers drug users um smugglers, motorbike bandits. And so I spend a lot of time and, I, and draw a narrative out of these people to learn more about their lives, what's nudged them into this life, why they do the things that they do, and that's the basis of the book. So it's not an expository academic book at all. I hope you would agree. It's a, a, it's a sort of narrative nonfiction. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Yeah. So Patrick Wynn, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Stop and Search. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much for Patrick for joining us on that and giving us this insight. Much needed insight. I think we all agree on that because, yeah, there's so much we're not having a conversation about that we need to. And while I'm on the thank yous, you know what I've got to do. Thank you so much for all of the Distraction Pieces Network, guys. Please listen to all their shows. Thank you to Scribius Pit for having us on his network. Thank you to Nikki and Tristan and the producers because without them, we would not have this show. Thank you to John at Distraction Pieces. Please listen to his podcast, The Dream Factory. Thank you to John at Leap UK. And here we go. Here's our channels. Find us on Twitter at UK Leap. Find us on Instagram at UK Leap. Our Facebook at UKLeap.org. And our website, UKLeap.org. Right. Thank you. My name is Ad as well for all the artwork and making us look very, very pretty. On that note, I'm going to sign off. See you again very, very soon with hopefully another eye-opening conversation. If that is a term. I don't know. Is it a contradiction in terms? I don't know. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us. Bye. Behind your barricade.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.